Some of you may not know me. My name is Oscar Medina. I'm uh, one of the elders around here. Before we read our, our passage for this morning, I would like just to uh, ask you to be in prayer. First of all, on a personal note for my wife, Dee, uh, Delal, some of you may know her, <laughs> um, but just her continued struggles and, and pain, that you would just come alongside us in that. And then, um, my, my, our family, we have a lot of people in Cuba still. And I think you've all seen in the news, uh, there's a lot going on. And we, we pray for their safety and we pray for the island in its entirety. But that you would be with us in that as well. So let's turn to the word, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Please have a seat. <clears throat> so I'm going to start this morning by sharing something personal with you that may disappoint you. Um, my family have already disappointed so many ways, so they'll be fine. And if you know me as a friend, I've probably disappointed you somehow. But those of you that I haven't met, uh, it may disappoint you to know that I am a comic book collector. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> yes, it's, it's an infection that caught me. And so I, I want to share with you now my most valuable comic. Now, as a single issue, um, you're going to be bored here pretty soon, but as a single issue, it's probably not worth that much. It was printed in 1969. I bought it a few years later for a quarter. Um, it's not in great quality. If it were in great quality, if it was like near mint and, you know, clean corners and no smudges and no bands, it'd probably be worth over $1,000. But this one's only worth about $50. So that in itself is not the reason why it's the most valuable comic in my collection. But it's also part of a collection. There are 62 issues in Car Captain Marvel, the original Captain Marvel. I have them all. So as a whole collection, it's worth more. But that's not why it's my most valuable comic. You see, my brother and I used to ride bikes down this street a few blocks away from our home. It was a really steep street. And it would go like for, I don't know, half, hour, half, of, half a mile, three quarters of a mile, just steep. And you'd pick up incredible velocity. And we'd have lookouts to make sure that cars weren't coming across. And we'd go all the way down. Then we'd walk the bikes all the way back up. 
And on that street, which by the way was just a few doors down from where my future sister-in-law used to live, <laughs> um, there was a house that had a sign that said comic book for sale. And one day I entered in and I had seen Captain Marvel someplace at Reddit and I asked him if he had any Captain Marvel comics and, and he sold me this one. And I've had it. It was just loose in a box for many, many years. That's why it's all worn. It's not in good shape. But that's why it's valuable to me because it has that memory of being the very first comic I ever bought with my own money. There's a lot of ways to look at the value of something, isn't there? Here's another example. I, yeah, I used to travel a lot. After COVID, things have changed quite a bit in the business world. But I would go sometimes to conferences, and often they would have little gift bags that they would give to all the attendees. And you'd get all kinds of cool things, like, like you know, maybe a pad like the one I'm holding here, or pens. And so, so you know, it's, it's great, and, uh, and you enjoy them. And, and I remember once I was at a, at a conference, and the speaker was talking about something that was valuable to him. And he had a violin, and uh, he called an usher forward, and he said, would you like to see it? And he gave it to the, person, the usher, and they passed it along the first row, and then he, he asked for it back, and he told them to be very, very, really careful. It's important to him. Then when he had it back, he said, well, how would you feel to know that this is a Stradivarius? and worth millions of dollars, and the impression for everybody, I didn't get to touch it, but everybody who didn't touch it wished they had, and those that had, suddenly it meant more to them. Again, the value of something can be measured in so many different ways. How do you rate it? Well, I'm, I'm really stuck with the phrase in verse 7 here that says, so that in the com coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace the immeasurable riches of his grace. Here's the problem that we face. Uh, scripture describes grace as immeasurable, but so many of us, I think, really don't get it. You know, a lot of people say when they talk about God's grace, I think it's great, I think it's nice, the concept of a gracious God, the concept of a God that's giving and that's loving. I, I like that idea. They, they talk like that. And, and many of us that have grown up in church have heard Grace talked about a free gift. But, but if you haven't had this dramatic, significant change in your life, perhaps you haven't really captured the full impact of what that means. Yeah. So, so how do you define Grace. Well, at least it's this, at least it's a gift, we got that, and we know it's free, but, you know, I talked about the gifts that you get in the gift bag, there's a lot of things that are free. You can get a lot of things that are free, you know, uh, I mean, just this week I signed into my credit card account and had a, a cashback reward, you know, <laughs> there's all kinds of things that you can label free, but are they significant? Do they really change your life? So imagine this, imagine you're poor, and imagine you live in a foreign land. You don't have access available to you of medical care, and you're quite sick, terminal almost. But you don't have either the resources, the money, or the availability of medical care. And someone who knows you, who isn't quite as poor as you are, sells most of what they have to get you to travel to that place and pay for your medical care. 
Now that gift was free to you, but it was still costly. But more importantly, that gift was invaluable, indispensable, important, life-changing. So I want to talk this morning about three ways that the grace of God is immeasurably worth. First of all, what's it worth to me? What's it worth to us? And second, what does it cost for me to receive? And third, what does it do for me? So verse 1, just starting right in, says, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. You know, there's a big difference between being sick and being dead. I don't think I need to belabor that point, right? I, I think we get that. <laughs> we don't need a medical degree to know that there's a difference between sick and dead. See, there's different degrees of sickness. And when you're sick, there's things that you can do. You could change your eating habits. You could take medicine. You can get vaccinated. You could listen to doctor's guidance. You can get rest. You can do exercise. And then if and when you get better, you can say that you had a hand in your health, in getting well. But with dead, you're just dead. You're lying in a coffin, decomposing. That's about all you're doing. Now, somebody might say, well, you know, I can control how fast I decompose by, you know, giving orders for the kind of coughing I'm in. And yeah, I suppose so, unless, you know, there's the story of the man gathered his whole family and told his wife, when I die, I want you to put all my money in the coffin. I want you to promise. And she did. After the fact, the family asked the mom if she did that. She goes, yes, I did. I, I took an envelope and I put a check with all the amount right in there. So, so yeah, there's... When you're dead, there's only one thing you need, and that's resurrection. And that's something you can't give yourself. That's something that has to be done on your behalf. This is where the deep message of Christianity is so often missed and, and has gotten confused over time. And I think part of it, honestly, is our own fault as churches and leaders and pastors have so belabored the part, the, the, the part of our comportment, of our morality, of our appearance before others, of, about how we act. And we've put so much communication and talk around that, that the message has gone out that it's about being a better person. And then sadly, they actually look at us for a comparison and they say, well, I'm just as good as they are. I'm not that bad. I just need a little help, just a little medicine. I've got a little sickness, a little infection called sin. And so the problem with that thinking is that it, it makes grace something that is just a help and not indispensable and not a requirement. And that's something that is absolutely needed. And, and so the problem is that we are not sick, we're dead. And, and, and it's too late to call a doctor. You know, I, I really like this comparison be, about be, between and, sick and dead because, you know, some people maybe would talk about distance, that it's so far you can possibly walk there. But again, somebody might think, well, if I keep walking or if I get a faster car, eventually I'll get there. If I have enough lives to relive, eventually I'll cross that distance. But this is not a distance that can be crossed. We're spiritually dead. 
There's no other possibility. There's only one solution. And it's really the great leveler, isn't it? Because we're all equally dead. Now, of course, let's be careful. Dead doesn't mean everyone is as bad as they can possibly be. I mean, there's different levels of decay, right? Some bodies are a little bit more decomposed than others. We acknowledge that there are nice people and there are nasty people. But before God, spiritually, we are all equally dead. Romans 3 says, no one seeks God. So sometimes we might put on the facade of being nice people. We go around doing things and we go around uh, trying to compensate. But in effect, we're trying to be our own savior. And in effect, we're, we're trying to earn our own place. And by doing that, we're actually rejecting God's grace. There are really only three ways to deal with our spiritual condition. We could ignore that we're dead. Not just absolutely ignore that there's an issue. We could make believe that we're ill and continue to try and do efforts to cure ourselves or we can admit that we're dead. And in which case, grace alone. Grace becomes indispensable. Becomes not only a free gift, but a gift that is absolutely required. When we understand this, it's really radically humbling. Because there's nothing that I could possibly do or have ever done that can achieve my relationship to God. If I contributed money, if I'm an activist for the right causes, or even get this, if I humble myself enough, if I beat myself up about my sin, if I make other people realize that I know how bad I am, that is not enough either. You see, all those things might be good and well for us to do, the giving and, and, and the social activism and the caring for people and, and the spiritual disciplines and the acknowledging our position before God. But all of that is not a precondition to God's grace. It's a result of God's grace. It's, it's a result of him acting in our lives. It's not something that we do to get to, to be with God in the first place. When I truly understand his grace, it really becomes impossible for me to treat somebody else with moral superiority. So, what does it cost for me to receive it? In the first three verses, um, the passage shows us our condition. In the next three verses, it talks about what God does. And he says three things. He says he makes us alive with Christ, he raises us up with Christ, and he seats us in the heavenly realm with Christ. Now, there's an interesting thing about these three verbs in the Greek. The first thing is that they all start with the letters S-Y-N, sin. Sin as in synchronize, as in synergy. It means together with. And so all three words, all three verbs in the Greek have the words, the, the prefix of sin, together with. And all three words are in the past tense. So that's really interesting, and really it's an amazing statement that he's, that he's saying. It's so much more impactful than a religion that says, if you do the right things for long enough, maybe I'll take you to heaven with you, with me. It's an amazing statement, because it's saying that the moment that you become united with Christ, we have been raised together with him. 
not literally in the sense that we're physically in heaven with him, but because he is, we must be. We are as loved and as delighted in as Jesus himself. That's how united we are. We're we're seated with him, not physically in the sense that we're not sitting in the seats we're in right now, but we're seated in heaven. Not, Not in that sense, but we're so united that because he is, we will be. Because he has been, we must be and will be. That's how united we are with him. Everything that he has ever done and everything that he deserves becomes yours. We're as honored and as accepted as his actions deserve. Now, there's a flip side to this. If we are so united that we get everything his life deserves, then he got everything our life deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God treats us according to his righteousness, but treats us according to his, to our sin. And what did our sin deserve? Well, he got it all. Physical death, yeah, absolutely, but so much more. I mean, think about when he's on the cross, when he cries out, what does he cry out? I mean, his hands have giant nails to them, does he cry, oh, my hands are hurting, oh, my, uh, does he cry out, oh, my feet, my feet are aching. No, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, Lord, why have you abandoned me? Because he experienced separation from God to such a degree that he had never experienced before. It all came down on him because we deserved it. He paid it. So now if you put together how irreplaceable, how indispensable the gift of grace is. Together with how costly it is, we begin to understand how big this gift is. I heard this story once. Let's see what you think. Uh, I'll poll you later. <laughs> this, uh, a friend uh, calls his, his friend and he says, hey, I, I came to visit you, but you weren't in. Oh, you know, sorry. He goes, yeah, so, you know, I thought maybe you were in the back. So I, I tried the doorknob and it was open, so I, I, I went in. Oh, okay. And, you know, and when I came in, you know, I'm sorry, I couldn't help, but I noticed there was a bill on your table. Oh, gosh, I guess I should have put that away. And uh, it was marked urgent, so I read it. Oh, <laughs> oh my. And, uh, and, and then I paid it. So how would you feel? Well, you know, really, the answer is, depends how big the bill is. Yeah. <laughs> right? So if it was a phone bill, you know, maybe I'd say, well, you know, wow, thanks, you know, but maybe let's talk about boundaries, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but if it was that IRS bill that, you know, they've been hounding me for five years for back taxes and, and on top of that penalties and fees, and the letter is written in this uh, government legalese that says, if you don't pay me, sucker, I'm going to come get you. <laughs> if it was that bill, then maybe I'd throw myself on my, on my knees and say, oh, how, how may I have your servant to, <laughs> to care for you today? It depends on the size of the bill. 
how costly it was. That's grace. See, if grace doesn't infuse your life with joy, it probably may mean that you don't realize how big a sinner you are. Tim Keller tells the story of he was asked to help a church select their candidates for elder. And they're going through a list of names, and one name is brought up. And the pastor says, I, I, I know Frank, he's a, he's a wonderful man, I love him deeply, but he's not ready yet. Oh, why isn't he ready? Well, because I don't see, see or sense any joy in him, which tells me he probably doesn't know how big a sinner he is. So Keller says he walked away thinking I was brilliant, it was fascinating. And then, right after that, I wonder what he thinks of me. <laughs> you know? But you know, if you understand the grace of God, there's this well of joy where you understand what you've been given. And you understand the great cost and its value. So, we said the grace of God is indispensable, which leads to deep humility. We, we said the grace of God is costly, which leads to deep joy. What does it do for me? Well, really, it does two things, and these are kind of in conflict. First of all, it's incredibly peaceful and sustaining. Secondly, it's incredibly painful and traumatic. So, so let's weed it, uh, into that. It's peaceful because it doesn't depend on me. It depends on God's nature. It's, it's a gift. Even the faith that I had to receive the gift was a gift. It, it, it depends on, on aspects of God's nature, and there's really two aspects of God's nature. There's, you know, a, a really quick theology thing here. There's intrinsic attributes of God, and there's, and there's relative attributes of God. So an intrinsic attribute of God is something like God is love, God is holy, God is truth. Relative is what happens when his intrinsic nature meets up with us and relates to us. So, so God is truth, when his nature interacts with us, he is faithful. God is holy. When he touches the world, he is just. God is love. And when he meets us, we see grace and mercy. So that's the, that's the peaceful part. That's the sustaining part. The part that's painful is that business about boasting. Because being a believer who has received the gift of grace means an end to boasting. See, we're, as a people, always looking for identity and self-worth, and it's exhausting. You remember the movie Rocky? Yeah, you remember that? <laughs> okay, well, it uh, came out in 76. I was actually entering high school that year. I started in the theater. <laughs> I had to stand in line, so that kind of dates me. In the movie, before the big fight, Rocky is walking the streets, and he's, you know, he's cast down, he's, he's kind of scared, and he gets to the apartment, and he tells Adrian, I can't win. There's no way I can win. And Adrian says, then why are you doing it? And he says, well, because nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I could just go the distance... If I could just go to the, well, why is that important to you, Rocky? Because then I know I'm not just a bum from the neighborhood. 
we constantly try to prove our value by comparing ourselves, by some form of boasting, some form of comparison to someone else or to something. You know, in the olden days, back when there were knights and, and you know, uh, wars where soldiers faced each other, they would line up and they would yell at each other. And, and what were they doing? They were boasting. They were saying, our king has a longer sword than your king. Our king is braver. Our king has better armor. And they would yell back and forth to each other. And, and they were boasting. And then they would go and kill each other. <laughs> but then the gospel comes. And it changes all of it. Because now our value and our stature is not something that we have built ourselves, but it's something that we were gifted. Our true value. I don't mean the thing that we put on our business card or on a nameplate on our desk. I mean who we really are at the core. That deep, intrinsic value of who we are as people, as created beings was a gift that we didn't earn. But we can't boast about it. How horrible! We can't boast about it. And so we understand that the life of grace is a life that brings an end to boasting. Now, verse 10 says that we are his workmanship. I've always liked that concept, that, that idea. But you know, for many years, the idea that I had in my mind of being his workmanship is kind of like Jesus took a weekend and built this beautiful construction that, that is me, right? You know, like this beautiful building, like a workmanship, you know? That, but then I realized that the Greek word that's used here is poema, which is the word from which we get poem. So now when I think about being his workmanship, I think more that he crafted a poem. Or maybe he wrote a song. Or maybe he choreographed a dance. And I like the idea of thinking that God is dancing with me, or God is singing me. Let me close by just sharing some of the marks of a life that depends on boastfulness, and then contrast that. So a life that, that depends on, on boastfulness, first of all, is angry. I mean, it's angry. I didn't get my just desserts. You know, I didn't get what I, what I deserved. Life isn't fair. You're grumpy, you're angry. Now, the opposite of that is when you realize that everything you have is a gift. And, and even more so, it's a gift that you didn't deserve, and it leads to, to a spirit of contentment. Now, learning to be content doesn't take away the responsibility of working and, and of doing, but you take pride only in being ultimately a gift of God. Now, another mark of, of boastfulness is disdain. So, you know, you look at your life, I've worked hard, I've struggled, I've made an effort, I didn't let life knock me down and look at all I've accomplished. But look at this sap. He's lazy because he hasn't worked as hard as I. Or maybe look at those people. 
they're different than I. Or people from that culture, or people from that religion, or look how poorly he speaks English, or she speaks English. And that disdain that we can have because we compare it to ourselves and all that we've achieved. Now, the, the, the contradiction to that, the opposite of that is acceptance. Accepting where others are. Accepting what they may or may not have struggled that we don't have a clue. Have you ever seen that meme? I think it, it's mostly have to do with a couple, but it's got a guy who's laying down flat and his arm is reaching over a cliff. And then uh, a woman is, is holding on to his, his, his hand, dangling from the cliff. There's a bubble on his head that says, why doesn't she work harder and pull herself up? But he can't see that there's a snake biting her wrist. And the bubble on her head says, why doesn't he work harder and lift me up already? But she doesn't see that he's laying down on broken glass. You never see the whole picture. And so there's no room for that disdain. There's one other way, and that's uh, a life that's marked with boastfulness is also marked with grudge. Always feeling like you've been snubbed. You haven't been treated well. You didn't get what was rightfully due to you. You see, if you know grace, then you know forgiveness. Do you hear me, church? <laughs> if you know grace, then you know forgiveness. And if you know forgiveness, then you can forgive. The only way that you can hold a grudge when you have known forgiveness is if you absolutely believe that you're morally superior. Superior. So, there's this hymn that goes, Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. So let's put this all together. Verses, the first three verses are about our sin. And how do we define that? Well, really, it's us putting ourselves where God should be. The next three verses is about his gift. And, and what does he do? Well, he puts himself where we should be. And then, what do we do with that? Well, there's only one boast that stops all boasting. Galatians 6 says, May I never boast except in the cross of Christ, through which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. The one boast that stops all boast. So earlier I talked about the image of the king and the soldiers and fighting and killing and all, and all, the, all the adolescent boys love that, right? <clears throat> But now picture this as the true spiritual reality. We have a king who's standing before the enemy. Behind him are us, all lying dead. And the king turns his back on the enemy because he has nothing to fear there. And one by one, he binds our bones, heals our wounds, and breathes into us life. And he stands before taking all the arrows that are thrown. And he does that through grace alone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you do for us and in us and through us. Thank you that we are raised with you and that we are seated with you and that we are united with you. 
touch our lives, Lord, with your word and help us to feel and understand your grace. In Jesus' name.